This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week TV podcast. This is James Manning from Media Week. With me as always, Andrew Mercado. Welcome back, Andrew. Hi, James. Uh, we're on Zoom as we've been for a, a long time now. And I've been, somebody told me we tend to shout a little bit on oh, this. Okay. So I'm going to try and just stay a little bit calmer. I, I guess it's because we get excited about what we're talking about, right? You can give me a hand signal when I get too excited, hey? <laughs> we'll, we'll try and keep a lid on it today and um, keep it down a little bit. One of the uh, big things that happened in TV land this week was the 10-2021 upfront. Yep. Um, virtual upfront, of course. No sort of live audiences these days for, for things like this. Um, Beverly McGarvey and uh, Rod Prosser with two of the main presenters there. And it was a pr- they, they went to a fair bit of trouble. Uh, it was a pre-record and they put on quite a show, didn't they? Yeah, they did a, they did a whole comedy skit with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, they had everyone from the living room. They had uh, Amanda Keller playing Dorothy. For me, the, the best gag was when the, the tornado was coming, the twister was coming, and she said, hang on, I've just got to go get Toto. And she ran back into the living room and got the CD, The Best of Toto. That's classic Amanda Keller humour, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she went off to see The Wizard, who was Osher Ginsburg, and then, you know, they, they, they took it all from there. And I guess the theme was The Wizard of Oz, Oz being Australia because their reality formats, especially those ones that used to be overseas, most of them are coming back to Australia to film. So I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, going to be filming in the Mwollombar jungle, not Africa. Um, The Amazing Race Australia, going around Australia only, not international. But I'm assuming James Survivor's still going to that South Pacific island. Well, I spoke to Bev McGarvey this week and she said they've got two possible locations. Okay. Survivor, they've yet to make a decision. One of those is in Australia and I'm guessing another one is out of Australia, so perhaps that Pacific location, if they could somehow get to Fiji or I think that's where the last one was, I can't remember. Yes. Or was it back in Samoa? I think it was Fiji. Uh, Samoa or Fiji, but yeah, yeah. that's interesting. So, so I think they've yet to make that decision. Just interesting on that Wizard of Oz, I was thinking with the whole Viacom CBS thing now, I don't think Wizard of Oz is actually a CBS property though or a Viacom property. So No, it would not. That would be an MGM movie. So goodness knows where that falls under today. Yeah. So it was interesting that they didn't, you know, because they're very, I mean, so much of their content now is linked to... Um, uh, Viacom CBS, especially on the multi-channels, which are almost sort of exclusively product from within the group, which sort of makes sense financially, I guess. I suppose it does. Uh, two shows not returning next year is Bachelor in Paradise, which is perhaps understandable given the hassles around filming anything at the moment. Um, wasn't, a, wasn't a huge sort of uh, ratings winner for them. It did okay. But I think, it, oh, just really quickly on that, I think also Bachelor in Paradise is by far the weakest part yeah. of that franchise. And I think to start with that and then go into The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, I think it brings down the other two shows. Uh, and I, I think it's a good decision to rest it for a year or maybe rest it permanently because, honestly, those kind of rejects that come back for 
another chance at love. I mean, that, it's, it's, they've, all, they've been scraping the, the barrel for a while there. Yeah, and it, it might give them a chance to split too when they show The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Yeah. The moment they virtually follow one follows the other. I mean, if they could bring one back earlier in the year, it, it, it might, some people might sort of have enough watching one series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it might help that. The, uh, it's not a surprise. It's been speculated wouldn't be back for some time, but Dancing with the Stars not returning, I guess which is partly perhaps a cost thing because it's, it's not a cheap show to put together. I would assume so. And I would also too, because it's so expensive to make and because they had such difficulties with this season, which was they were mid-pandemic, shutdown, lockdown. Yeah, uh, it's a shame because I've always loved that show and I, and I loved what Ten did with it. And I'm sad. I'm sad that we don't have dancing shows because dancing shows are my favourite, but they're also the most expensive to make. So that's why we end up with all these bloody singing shows. I'd much rather watch So You Think You Can Dance or Dancing with the Stars, but hey, that is the cost of things. Uh, they've got three new shows, but only one of them sort of a major multi-night 7.30 uh, format, which is Making It Australia. Yeah. Now, if you can explain to me the attraction of this one, I, I don't sort of get it. It's, it's a crafting show where, where and I know crafting's big and a lot of people are into crafting, but I don't know, I, I can't see it translating to, but then I, I was surprised that so many people watched um, uh, Lego Masters, of course, yeah. and that worked. But but, I mean, but Lego makes part of that. Lego is very different from scrapbooking, you know, <laughs> which is what you know. Um, and look, but look, I think we have to be really careful here because I remember how many years ago it was when ten. Uh, stopped doing Big Brother and made their announcement at that upfront. I think it was at the Ivy in Sydney. We were all there and we're in the big room and they said, we're going to be doing an English cooking show called MasterChef Five Nights a Week. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. Like literally every single TV industry person was sitting there going, whispering, oh, shit, that's not going to work. Oh, what a ridiculous. And look, you know, they did it. So, look, it's, the key to this working is it's going to be whatever new elements they bring to this show and however they Australianise it and how they make that a broader appeal show than people sitting there with scissors cutting out whatever they're going to cut out. You know, they just might pull it off. Yeah, I mean, it's quite possible it could work. I think um, Beverly McGarvey said it's going to be hosted by comedians. Good. So... So depending on who they choose there, but that that that'll help. Uh, that'll help for sure. Um, the other programs were the first inventors, which I think sounds great. Fabulous show. That's going to be once a week. Yeah. And then Doghouse Australia. Well, look, Doghouse UK was great. I mean, did you watch it, James? I cried every episode when those people met their dog to be adopted and you'd heard about their life, what an awful thing had happened to them, that they were there wanting to adopt a dog. And look, that, that's a format that's going, to, that's going to work. And, look, The First Inventors is, you know, that, story's, that show's been in the pipeline for years. A friend of mine's been pushing that for years and years. Uh, good on Margie Brown for getting this across the line. You know, she'd been working with uh, 
uh, some Indigenous uh, people up in the Daintree, far north Queensland, and, you know, they've been uh, saying for years there's so much in the rainforest, particularly there, that they were using for natural bush medicines uh, and things like this way back. There's so many things to be revealed in the new Inventors and it'll be hosted by Rob Collins. I can't wait to see it. Now, I think this is actually a co-production with NITV. Yeah. They're involved in it, which is, which is great to see. And I, and I wish more people would do stuff with them. And look, well done to Ten too for taking something that you would think on paper would be something, oh, well, that's a show about Indigenous people, just give that to NITV. Well done to Ten for seeing that there is some uh, commercial marketability in a show called The First Inventors, uh, a show that they described in the press release that they say is going to be Attenborough-esque. You know, well done them for uh, taking, uh, taking the chance on this. Ten were keen to point out how they're having a pretty good 2020, given all the the challenges all the broadcasters have, have been facing in terms of um, getting shows to air. Uh, they they're claiming their their TV viewings up 11% year on year. I'm not sure what the small print is there. It's possibly in their key demo, I guess, under 50. Um, but I, I guess I, I'm always forgetting because you look at the all people figures. That's the usual currency for looking at TV ratings quickly every day. And, you know, 10 often is quite some way behind um, 7 and 9. But then when you drill down into those figures, it's a lot more competitive. And just like this week, we're talking on a Thursday, a Friday morning. You know, last night they had the two biggest shows in all those key demos, which was Gogglebox and The Bachelorette. So it's, it's quite a big deal for advertisers that want to get out to that market. Well, I mean, historically, 10 never wanted to be number one. They were always happy to come third as long as they got the revenue. Uh, And, of course, they stuffed that up for a while by deciding they wanted to broaden their revenue base and get a bit more competitive, and it was a disaster. So they're really going back to the position they used to be in for so long. They don't need to be number one, but they want a key demo. And that is entirely what 10 is about. 10 goes for the cool kids. And uh, as long as it can get um, some of them on board, they're doing the right thing. I asked 10 about what have you done to your news, you know, because lots of cutbacks, quite a few staff left, particularly news readers. All the bulletins now for for the country come out of either... Sydney or Melbourne, they said, yeah, look, we've, we've had, we are trying to do, um, we're trying to keep the station running with less sort of funds this year, right? We've, we're spending a bit less, but we want to try and keep the quality. And they said, okay, but we've been able to save by cutting down on the broadcast centres outside of Sydney and Melbourne, but it hasn't allowed us to keep journalists and if you like, news crews in all those markets. Okay. So we're still filing local stories for the bulletins in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. It's just that we're not anchoring the news out of those markets. And, look, and if I suppose if you've got to do some sort of cutback to news, that's probably the smart way to do it. So you do keep the local content for those audiences. Yeah, yeah. It's much more important to have reporters on the ground and journalists doing local stories than 
someone sitting there reading the news, I suppose, if something had to be cut. But those local journalists in those towns, you know, they're going to have to keep doing that because those local viewers will not keep watching a show uh, without local content in it. Sure, sure. There's, um, I don't know if you watch much 10 play yet. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just haven't had the time to go and explore it. The audiences are pretty small, but apparently that's, they're getting reasonable numbers for daytime for the, the uh, kids' programming. Uh, what you, did you say 10 play or 10 shake? Oh, sorry, 10 shake. 10 no, shake. I, I don't get it. It's not on the Foxtel box. Right. So I haven't seen it. I can't see a program guide anywhere. It's not being printed in any of the magazines. And do you know what? I can't actually see a single show on there that I'm interested in watching. For a brief second, I went, oh, look at that. South Park's doing a pandemic special. SBS has dropped the show. Ten Shaker picked it up. I wouldn't mind watching that. That's about it. Yeah. It's just talk about launching a new channel and, you know, did a tree fall in the forest and nobody heard. You know, wow, it's like... Oh, I can't say anything about it. I haven't seen anything about yeah. it. Ten are calling it, a, they're, now they're saying it was a soft launch. Well, <laughs> we, we sort of know that, I guess. But um, yeah. whether it will get any harder next year, I, I'm not too sure. Yeah, the, the Foxtel thing's weird, isn't it? Because the figures indicate that about 25% of Australia probably watch TV through their Foxtel box. So it's a fairly significant part of your audience. Um, yeah. Um, Okay, so that's, yeah, there's probably not a lot else to say about the uh, the 10 up front. It's sort of, um, we've we've covered it there. A couple of new podcasts. They've got a platform called 10 Speaks. There's a, a Wally Daly's doing a weekly podcast now, which looks pretty interesting. But again, you know, gee, that whole podcast world, there's so much out there. It's, um, well, it's really um, hard to know. <laughs> and you know what? They didn't say anything about drama. There was like a... Five-second reference to Neighbours, which basically give, gets them all their quoted drama content points. Um, I didn't even think, did they even mention Five Bedrooms, which is filming its second series now? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure because... Um, I remember seeing it in that presentation. Mm. I didn't see any Aussie drama there except the briefest of mentions to Neighbours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no... I, if it did get a mention, it was very quick. I can't recall it, that's for sure. But, yeah, they are definitely making another season. Well, they've been trying to do that for a while, I guess. But, yeah. um, but um, see what happens there. Now, look, there's a show. Now, you're not really a big reality TV guy, are you? No. There's a couple of exceptions. Yeah, look, I, I put it this way, James. I will, If I like a reality show, I will often watch the first series and go, okay, this is something new. I'll watch it to the end. The next year it comes back, I may not do it. There's, a, there's always been a few exceptions, but there's a whole bunch of shows on now that go on like The Block and MasterChef and The Voice where I really just go, I know what those shows are. I don't need to watch them again. I don't have time. Now, your column in Media Week on the Friday we're recording this, you've, you've gone out, I won't say out in a limb, but it's very unusual for you to get so behind a reality format. Now, the show is SAS Australia, and you said Big Bold Type 7 has nailed a reality format, and it's this show, and um, you really enjoyed it, didn't you? I really did. You know, it is so different from everything on TV. I mean, this is so hard ass. I was just watching it with 
my mouth, my just going, whoa, this is full on. Like they don't refer to the celebrities by name. They just give them a number. Uh, one of the contestants sort of mouths off and so they punish him. And then when he still doesn't do the right thing, they punish everybody else in the team, James, <laughs> and say that's what happens because you're being a smart ass. Like, and they say things like, you know, you, you could have just had everyone in this squad killed because of what you just did there. And, and straight away you see some of the contestants not coping with it at all because this is really full-on stuff. And it's such an insight into a world that... I know nothing about. Uh, I just found it so fascinating. I'll be watching this one to the end. Oh, I think they've done a great job with it. Yeah, so it's basically 17 people. And it's, to me, it's 17 seems an odd number, doesn't it? I, yeah. I'm just wondering if someone pulled out or, or maybe they would, you know, they because they said they didn't really put anybody through trials before it started. They, they just showed up. Yeah. Um, a couple of people did a fair bit of work. I think um, one of the interesting people to watch in that first episode is uh, Merrick Watts. Yeah. The look on his face is so totally. steely and determination. You think yeah. he is desperate to get, because there's no winner in this. No. What there are are people who complete the course and then the, um, the special force soldiers, the sort of instructors who sort of run the, the whole um, run the whole series, decide if that so just com, just finishing doesn't guarantee you a pass. So you've got to also earn it from the um, the the special force soldiers. So you you, you can really tell he's desperate to finish and yep. to get a pass. But yeah. he did um, he went on bush hikes wearing a big pack. So he really trained hard for this. And I think some other people uh, did varying amounts. And some of them look like they did no training at all, James, uh, which makes that first episode kind of entertaining. But, yeah, like if, if you were smart, you would have done some training in advance and at least prepared for it. But, I mean, what prepares you for go get into that water that's three degrees, lie down the water up to your neck, and maybe tonight you'll be able to dry your clothes by the fire in the room. Like, it's hard-ass. Yeah. I think it's only run in the UK before this series. I had the stats here, but I'm not sure. There's, I think there's only ever been 13 people who, I think this is right, who've passed. Right. And I think it's been something like five or six seasons. Yeah. So it's... um. It's like climbing that Mount Madiriyama, whatever it's called, <laughs> Ninja Warrior. Not a lot of people actually get to do it. Yeah. It's pretty hard. So it will be fascinating to see um, what happens. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. I always like finding out about drones in, um, in um, reality TV shows, well, any show for that matter. They had, had four working in this program, so doing different parts of it, as well as you'll see people seeing that first episode, there is a chopper. They had, they had different choppers at different times throughout this season, but they were just used for the, um, the recruits uh, and the drones actually were used for all the footage. So it's coming up on seven. Literally, you know, I think they're doing a, 
an uncut version too. Wow. There, there's quite a bit of fruity language. Oy. And so you'll be able to watch that on presuming either on um, 7 Plus or broadcast late at night. Okay. So watch out for that. That could be worth catching up too. Uh, another reality show which started this week was sort of something really reality, I guess, is it? But that's a pretty broad umbrella these days, Restoration Australia. Ah, right. It was a program I really enjoy watching. Um, I think Stuart Harrison is the name of the the architect involved and he's the host. Um, it's just, just a great show, yeah, Stuart Harrison. Uh, six episodes. This is actually season three. It's a lot like um, Grand Designs Australia. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really like it. It's sort of less commercial if you like. I'm, but I'm not sure why I say that. Um, but it, it's very similar. But this is, I don't know, it's just it's a bit more of a purer sort of architectural um do you think because right. we're starting with a property and restoring it as opposed well, to... Well, I guess where that's the obvious thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the others are, are, are pretty much new builds. Yeah. Or if there is a house, there's very little of it. And the, there's always the, history with a restoration. Yeah. Any episodes I've seen, there's, there's always, you know, the, the, the owners are saying, look... There's some history to this or that door there. We want that incorporated into here to keep the history. That's such an important part of the show. It works really well. Sure, yeah. I mean, most of the homes in this six episodes are in New South Wales. Uh, the first one was at the Rocks in Sydney. That was fascinating. Or actually, Miller's Point, to be more correct. Right. Um, uh, that was just fascinating How what, what happened there. And the people ended up spending, I think... They'll be all up close to $10 million by they get the end of it. Wow. <laughs> they, spent, they spent about five in that so far, but then they're planned. They've still got stuff that's unfinished, and that's going to push the price right up a lot higher. Uh, they get down to Victoria, I think, to uh, Ballarat also in this season, but it looks really good. That's on Sunday nights and, of course, iView. Yeah. Um, I think we both watched The Return of Gruen this week, and... Um, Geez, so did a lot of Australia, you know. Metro audience close to a million. That's um, best figures for five seasons. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to think when you kind of look at all these shows during pandemic and think, oh, that one will get a kick and, and it doesn't, but then Gruen comes along and just proves, look, that audience, they can find the show, they know when it's coming back, boom, they're back there night one. They must be so thrilled with that result. Yeah, and... Uh, and it did seem to me like it was an important season. Yeah. Because you really want to know how those people analyse both the way government has been messaging Australians during the, the pandemic and then also the commercially how brands have reacted. And we also have to get used to the fact too that the show is now being filmed in a void. The studio audience is not there. So like... Michaela, Sean Michaela's show and Charlie Pickering, we as the audience are used to that roar of laughter that comes after a funny line and when the one line is delivered and nobody laughs, you kind of go, oh, did, did that joke not work? And then you go, oh, no, this is, this is the post-COVID world, you know, that that audience isn't going to laugh at his jokes anymore. So, you know, the first episode I thought they were trying to work with that, but, you know, 
the, the content that, of what they have to say, yeah, it's, it's been overdue. It's great to have them back. Yeah, I must say I adapt to the no audience pretty quickly, I think, as a viewer, particularly on Groom, where it's not strictly a sort of a, a comedy show, is it, I guess? Yeah. But Will Anderson always has those, you know, zingers yeah. that he <laughs> comes out with. And a couple of nights, you know, the other night he did one and nobody laughed. It was like, come on, God, somebody just have a chuckle at him. The guy's got no nothing to feed on anymore. But, yeah, it was, it was a great episode. Yeah, one of the highlights was, well, there were lots of highlights, but they had a nice little package of the way brands were advertising this year and they were referring to the upheaval in people's lives without mentioning yeah. about what had actually happened. Yes. Yeah, so that, was that was very clever. Um, Craig Rucastle was also back uh, this week with a, another show about climate change, if you like. This one's called Big Weather, Although, and it had been filmed a little while ago because he was sort of referencing the, the, the lead-up to the bushfires uh, that sort of devastated so much of Australia last summer. It was being filmed exactly a year ago now. So he was in there when those bushfires were breaking out in spring. He was already talking to those fire chiefs. Then he was going with them as everything they predicted would happen did start to happen. And, you know, I don't think that we should call this a show about climate change because that means that people who don't believe in climate change won't watch the show. And in actual fact, this is a show that could save your life. You know, there's very few places in Australia now where we're not going to be in line of a bushfire or, as the show pointed out the other night, we're going to have less cyclones, but the storms are going to be more intense. And it doesn't matter where you live in Australia, you could find yourself in a storm with some flash flooding. And, you know, some of the real tips they're going to give in this show about how to look after yourself and and what to do in an emergency. This is really important stuff and and stuff that we should be watching, regardless of whether or not we believe in climate change. During that first episode, Craig was door knocking people who lived in sort of fringe or in bush areas and asking them if they had a fire evacuation plan. And almost everybody said no or, or a very scant, you know, no, no, no real idea. And it's interesting what you say about this show could save your life and it's even the, um, the sort of media kit the, the ABC, ABC sent out, two pages of it were devoted to survival tips. Yeah. One was a sort of a, it's almost like a thing you could print and put up on your wall somewhere, uh, somewhere appropriate in your house, I guess, but what to do if caught in a flood yeah. or what to do if caught in a fire, you know, sort yeah. of instructions on um on what you should do how you should prepare and um what what could happen to you uh fair bit now i wanted to talk we haven't talked on this podcast about ratchet yet have we (laughs) you you wrote about it a couple of weeks ago i think but we didn't mention it did we i don't think no i think when we last time we spoke about i was talking about how excited i was to see it and then i saw it completely are crazed I was by it, you know, because I just think it's a travesty to tie this new Ryan Murphy production into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is one of the greatest literary classics 
and modern movie classics of all time. And it is not a horror movie. It's a film about the human condition. And the fact that Ryan Murphy has turned it into schlock horror, he's allowed to make schlock horror. He can go make Scream Queens and American Horror Story. I don't have a problem with that. But to tie it into One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and to completely trash that character of Nurse Ratched, it, I just think the whole thing is a travesty. I've got nothing good to say about it. Wow. Because you know what I'm going to say now, aren't you? You really liked it. I'm, <laughs> believe me, I'm having arguments with lots of people. Lots of people have watched it from start to finish and gone, it was great, I loved it. And it was like, yeah, but it's good. It's, it's, it's untruthful. That's my problem. I can't get over the, the dishonesty of it. Yeah, well, Ken Casey, who's the author of uh, One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nets, gets a credit as a co-writer. Um, so there's sort of some respect there for the source material, if you like. No, but there isn't. Ken Kesey didn't write a book about a nurse that faked her credentials and faked getting into homes. That's not what that character was. She was a monster, but not in the universal Frankenstein Dracula sense. She was a woman who obviously had issues and she didn't know how to take care of the mental health patients in her ward. And we have turned that into a, almost a comedy by saying, oh, mental health patients amputate their own arms if you don't pay them enough attention. They'll cut their own legs off for attention. And going, what are we talking about here? That's not what Ken Kesey was writing about when he wrote that book. He would be rolling in his grave over what they've done with the character. Yeah, well, I mean, I sort of get your point of view, but, I mean, if you start applying that measure to a lot of what gets made these days, you'd probably have problems with, because there's lots of adaptions of lots of things that do veer quite off course. Um, but they usually stay within the same genre. This is my point with this. You can't switch genres. You can't suddenly say, here's this drama. We're now going to make it a slasher horror movie. You can't do that. You can make a prequel to Gone with the Wind and call it Scarlet, but you still have to make it a sort of a romantic melodrama. You couldn't suddenly decide that Scarlet O'Hara was now working as a nurse in a mental asylum. It, it, that's my issue with this. It's that the two things are not in the same genre. One is a serious drama about the human condition and the other one is a horror movie. You can't just take a character and put them in a completely new world. You've got to at least stay in the same genre if you're going to copyright characters out to be rebooted. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I'll concede that to you, but the things that got me in, I mean, there is a lot to like about this, right? The, the cinematic quality of the production is, is quite stunning, you know, and it's set in the same place, I think, around Monterey where they filmed Big Little Lies. Yeah. I think there's that same bridge. Same bridge. They drive over and the little motel where um, Nurse Ratchet stays in that first episode, it's just... Quite, quite special. The music is brilliant. It's just, just like watching a real classic Hollywood, um, Hollywood movie. The sets are stunning. The, um, the actual mental hospital is just amazing. 
But it, it looks like a chic hotel at times. But. Exactly. It doesn't look like a mental hospital, which is my point. And by the way, yes, it looks fabulous and it's lush and it's got that old Hollywood and there's homages to Alfred Hitchcock galore in it. But why? Alfred Hitchcock got nothing to do with One Fly of the Cuckoo's Nest. And also there's homages to The Silence of the Lambs from the 1980s. Then there's an homage to Bonnie and Clyde. In 1969, you're going, these homages don't even make sense. We're not even sticking. Like, they're just, he's just throwing everything in there. And, yes, on its own, it's very enjoyable to watch. But I think we really, I'd really like to drum him down and say, what are you trying to say, Ryan? What is the point of it all? It's just a horror show with homages to all these other things, and it has no point. It has nothing to say about the human condition. Whereas with One Flow of the Cooker's Nest, you walk away from that and go, wow, mm. wow, that's something really to chew over. I don't know what you think about at the end of Ratchet without going, oh, well, what is there to watch next? It's like eating a Chinese meal. Okay, well, the last little point on this before I move on. Uh, the cast. Yeah. I mean, wow. Judy wow. Davis is sensational. Um, Amazing cast. Look at Sharon Stone. Still so beautiful playing this rich woman with a monkey. But why? It's got <laughs> nothing to do with the story. Sarah Paulson's pretty amazing in, in, the, in the lead role. Um, yeah. Guy I like, Corey Stoll, who's in that um, first episode. I'm not sure if he turns up. He's the guy living a couple of doors up in the motel because um, yeah. he's a regular on Billions. He was in House of Cards, yeah. in yeah. The Juice, another show you like. Yeah. He's such a great actor. And Amanda Plummer playing the um, sort of lady who runs the motel, daughter of Christopher Plummer. Um, so if you only watched the first episode. Yeah. Right. Will you get back to me when you watch the next seven, James? What are we even doing talking about this? But so that's what I was going to ask. So you have gone right through it. the whole freaking thing from beginning to end because mm. I had to, I, I kind of thought, am I being too harsh on this? Maybe he's got, maybe there's going to be a point to this. So I watched all eight hours of it. And when I got to the end, I went, they have just trashed that character <laughs> and there's no point to it. I know, but, but. There, I'm just. I'm not saying you're wrong, but my argument is to you. After watching one episode, you, it's pretty impressive what they've done. And I get. Look, the storyline is a little bit confusing, and at times you go, hmm, really, with the whole thing with the governor and and all that sort of stuff, and that guy running it at the hospital isn't really very convincing. His character, he's so unlikely a bloke who would be, you know, but. But it's just so well done. Anyway, look, let's move on. Um, that's on Netflix, isn't it, if I'm not right. Yeah. Something else on Netflix also, well, creating even more controversy, I guess, than Ratchet certainly has, is Emily in Paris. Mm-hmm. Now, a new Darren Star series. Yeah. Now, people have been saying, look, people have been saying, look, this is lightweight junk, you know. Um, I've watched the first two, and I've got to say, um, it is lightweight. I, I won't call it junk because I don't think you can have lightweight TV without it being necessarily junk. 
I thought it was sort of enjoyable. I thought it was quite well done. I mean, the, the storyline's very light and the plot's paper thin. Oh. <laughs> cliches galore. I was going, you can make a drinking game with the cliches. Yeah. It's all there. That, it's all there in the show's title, isn't it? Emily in Paris. Yeah. That's the show. And that's American what, yeah. girl goes to Paris and goes, I can't speak French. Ah, <laughs> oh, French people are awful. Oh, croissants are delicious. It's like every freaking cliche you've ever heard about France and Paris is in this show. And you're right, for Darren Starr, it's kind of disappointing. It wouldn't be disappointing if he'd done this back in the late 80s, early 90s between Melrose Place and Sex and the City. But to be doing it in 2020 on what? Does he have some new deal with Netflix now like everybody else is getting? Like Sonder Rhymes and Ryan Murphy being paid millions of dollars to make shows? I presume so, yeah. Well, if this is, uh, you know, Netflix are laughing. But you know what? It'll probably work for Netflix because all their shows feel like they're being genetically modified in some lab of, you know, what do people want to watch? Oh, they like shows about girls and they want to go to Paris on holidays. Hey, let's do a show about a girl in Paris. That's what it feels like to me. And I watched the first episode and kind of went, Oh, yeah, look, I don't think I could spend much more time on that. I'm sort of interested to see where this might go because, yeah, they've rolled out every cliche in the first episode. Yeah. So it's going to have to rely on some sort of plot to keep going where there wasn't really a story in that first episode. No. But they don't muck around. I mean, in uh, compared to Ratchet, they took that whole first episode, sets it up, but you're still left wondering, or oh, what? There's still some, I think, plot development necessary in episode two to get it set up properly. But in um, Emily in Paris, four minutes she's in, starts in Chicago, four minutes later she's living in Paris. So they don't muck around, they get straight into it. So I always quite like things like that. Um, Yeah. yeah. So it'd be interesting to see where it goes. But it's, and it's interesting, it's come on at a time where no one can go to Paris. True. So I think that does give it a pretty big boost. Interesting. I kept watching for shots of Notre Dame and I couldn't see anything at all. So they've either carefully edited it out because I'm gathering it's covered in scaffold since the fire. Yeah, yeah. Which would sort of wreck your sort of dreamy um, skyline shots of Paris. So I don't know whether it might crop up at some stage. And, again, I'm presuming it was filmed after the fire, which must have been two years ago now. At least, yeah. But you, you never know. So I just, that was an interesting aside. But, yeah, I, I sort of, and I always enjoy, it's about 25 minutes, so you can power through a few. And it's good to have on if you're cooking, if you're cleaning. You don't have to sit there giving it all your attention. Like you sort of do with Ratchet or you're going to be left behind and go, what the hell's happening here? Yeah. So, yeah. But what I wanted to mention, an article by Craig Matheson in um, The Age in the City Morning Herald, he sort of used Emily in Paris as an example of, of how, I mean, and uh, I, I won't, won't, we should sort of talk to him if we want to, so we won't debate his article, but he just used it as what he thought was an example of, of Netflix sort of not being as edgy as it used to be and being a bit bland. Um, what, you read the story. Did, do you think he's got a decent argument? Yeah, I, thought, I think he was spot on. 
I've always thought that Netflix were edgy by accident. <laughs> you know, they made a show and they kind of went, oh, we don't think this is going to work. And then it did work. So they kind of went, yeah, yeah, we really stood behind this the whole way. Now you can see, oh, oh, as I just said before, it really feels to me now like um, a computer is writing some of their titles and some of their shows. I don't think they're edgy at all anymore. They're the market leader and they just want as many eyeballs watching and, you know, if something works, they just throw it into a blender and spit out a different version of it at the other end. I don't think they're very adventurous or brave anymore. Right. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be tempted to give them the benefit of the doubt because there's just so much content. Yeah. I think to mount an argument like that, um, it's, it's hard because there's just so much there. They're brave with some of the movies they do, but I'm finding their TV shows are becoming very, uh, yeah, you go, yeah, I, I, I totally get what, what, why that's on Netflix. That's what I've been finding for the past few years. Yeah. I, I think a lot of their um, European stuff particularly still seems quite art house. Yeah. Um, because they have a, that's because Europe has put in laws to demand that they fulfil some local drama quota. So that's why when you get European filmmakers making shows for Europe, we think of them as being arty here in Australia. I bet you Netflix wouldn't be making those shows if the European Union hadn't demanded they do. And then they would be even less arty. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I mean, Craig is in his story there is a few, few um, examples, a few exceptions, perhaps something like Ozark. Yeah. Although he doesn't really say it's, I, I would have used that as an as an exception to to that, wouldn't it? I mean, that's not. Or do you think that's probably part of it too? It's a bit. Ozark feels pretty. Ozark well, that's was, finished too. It's been cancelled, I guess. Yeah, that Ozark was a cross between Breaking Bad. You know, I just always went, oh, they took a bit of Breaking Bad and a bit of this, and they made Ozark. I wouldn't put Ozark into the terribly edgy category. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you think back to the when Netflix started, they had House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, which, which kind of historically were the shows that kind of set them off. And neither of those shows would have been really made by a network. You know, no American network would have gone, oh, let's make a show called House of Cards. That would have been an HBO show. So in the early days, some of the shows that they probably didn't think were going to work as well as they did did work and made them look really edgy for being, you know, giving such a huge audience to shows that once upon a time wouldn't have been on free-to-air TV, wouldn't have been considered by free-to-air TV. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an interesting debate anyway. So anybody wants to check that, it's, um, it's a story called Netflix, The Great Disruptor with Emily in Paris and the like, not so much, yeah, by Craig Matheson. And you'll find that on the um, websites of the age or the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, now, Boys in the Band, I've got a feeling we chatted about, maybe we did, you've also written about this one, haven't you? Yeah, so this is uh, a, a movie of a 
Broadway production of a play 50 years after it first premiered on Hollywood, on Broadway. And The Boys in the Band was the first play, mainstream play ever about homosexuality. And then the movie version, which also used the same cast as the Broadway show. This is very unique in uh, Broadway and cinema history. The, the movie was, in 1971, was directed by William Friedkin, who went on to make The Exorcist. That's totally blowing my mind. And I'm trying to track down the original boys in the band. I understand there's a fantastic audio commentary uh, of the movie on an American Blu-ray DVD. So it's not cheap, but I might end up getting it. But now we've got Ryan Murphy. Uh, he uh, helped put this play onto Broadway and the, the original cast has come back for it. And last night on Netflix, I found a documentary about it with the guy who wrote the play, Matt Crowley, and all of his interactions with the cast who are in Boys in the Band today. And I was looking at him going, yeah, you're kind of familiar. And I thought, yeah, you're a famous gay playwright, I know it. But he was also Natalie Wood's best friend. So he was in that Natalie Wood's documentary that her daughter made um, a little while back. Um, and so it's there on Netflix if you go listening for it. So I, I think they've done a really good job for it. And I think it's really interesting, James, when people say political correctness has killed everything. Mm. Here's a play from 1969 which has some really questionable language in it because of the slurs that were being used back then and they have kept it all in to keep it as part of the historical context. And I think it's really interesting to say to people who say political correctness kills everything, it's like, no, it hasn't actually. You can still do it in a historical context to go look at how far we've come in society. And, in fact, I read that the African-American actor in the play, he went in to defend the use of language used against him as a black man in that era and said, look, this is important. We need to put it in there to show how things were. So there's a lot of really interesting things about boys in the band, um, particularly in a historical sense. So check it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, good, good. Look, uh, we're nearly out of time here this week. The I just wanted to finish up on something that, isn't on for a couple of weeks. And it's unusual for me to be ahead of the game. I'm usually way behind catching up on stuff. But it's a, a UK drama called Roadkill. Right. With Hugh Laurie. Now, this hasn't even screened in the UK yet. It goes out on the BBC this weekend. And two weeks later, it's starting on the ABC. So they've wow. done a great job of getting it to air. Uh, Hugh Laurie pays a UK politician called Peter Lawrence. And it starts with the end of a court case where he is, um, he is found not guilty um, um, of, um, what did he do? I think it's corruption or uh, a libel case against a journalist. That's right. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's amazing. So Hugh Laurie is just fantastic. And the uh, journalist is played by, is it Helen McCrory? McCoy, was she in the one fa mother, father, son? Yes, yeah, she was the mother. Yeah. Yeah. Mother, and um, she's apparently also in Peaky Blinders, as I say, apparently, because that's one of the shows I've managed to never watch an episode of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was um, Cherie Blair in The Crown. 
That's right. Yeah. So she's she's really good in this. Well, but we can talk about that in our next podcast. And also in that next podcast, we'll have to have a chat about have you watched The Undoing with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant? Right, yes. Have you watched it yet? No. Is there, is there a preview up, is there? Ah, uh, yeah, it's there. Go through your emails. It starts, I think, on October 26th and one review, the, the embargo was a couple of days ago and as soon as the embargo was lifted, the most withering review of it. And I don't like to read other reviews of things because... It kind of, I don't want it to affect what I'm going to say about it, but this review, I just read the first line and went, oh, God, because I was watching it going, um, this isn't very good. Is this just mm. me or is this an, yeah, so I can't wait to talk to you about that. It's the big new HBO drama. And, of course, I've been hanging out for because I love Hugh Grant. Yeah. Um, and I've uh, seen the promo. The promo looks great to me. I think, oh, this is right up my alley. Yeah, well, we'll have to... I, I will be disappointed if it's no good. Yeah. And we will also need to talk... I want, you to, I want you to get in touch with me if you make it to the end of episode three of Ratchet. Okay. That's, that's a dropping off point. The people who are with me and say, yeah, it's rubbish, they say, I got to episode three and said, why am I doing this? If you can make it past episode three, you're in the other camp of people who love the show and are prepared to go, I don't care. So episode three is the deciding point, I think, for Ratchet. I knew we'd come back to this. The, she, does seem, she does seem very unhinged and that she could unhinge further on. I'm guessing maybe that happened. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I've got it. Um, you've intrigued me now, so I'm definitely going to get to the end of episode three. Yeah. So you, what you want to know is if I start watching four, right? Correct. I oh, correct. I want you to watch episode three and then send me a text message and say, <laughs> "I'm in for the et, to the end or I'm out." That's all you have to say. All right. Okay. Will do. All right, Andrew. Look, always great uh, catching up with you. Thanks for that, and we'll um, talk again soon. We've also got already got a couple of talking points ready for next time. Thanks, James.